Hello and welcome to the Burning Ones podcast. Our goal is to help people all around the world experience the love and power of Jesus and live passionately devoted to Him. We pray that the podcast is just that for you. Thank you for joining us on this journey and may burning witnesses arise for Him all around the world. Uh, I have some specific things on my heart as I've just been readying myself to come and be with you guys and really trying to seek the Lord Right, like Second Chronicles 7, I know we're all familiar with it. Right, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, it says, and seek my face. Right, so when I say, as I've been trying to pray and seek his face, uh, the two are not always the same. Right, you can do a lot of praying without actually seeking the face of God. You can pray for your own agenda. You can pray with your own demands. You can pray for the establishment of your own kingdom. You can be seeking that God would bless all of your endeavors, all of your dreams. Uh, so when I say seeking his face, I mean like, Lord, what do you want tonight? Like, what are you saying? Um, and, and I believe that there are some particular things on my heart that the Lord would ask me to share with us tonight. Uh, let's open up to Acts chapter 13. This is not going to be... Uh, something that is, well, well, I mean, I don't want to say that. I'm just talking about this passage of Scripture. Uh, I know that it's not something new, right? It's not like saying, turn to Obadiah, right? Where you're like, oh, man, like he really knows his Bible. You know what I'm saying? Like, if he's turned to Obadiah, like, it's about to get serious. Like, we're going to turn to Acts, right? Acts chapter 13, um, because as, as we are here together tonight in the presence of God, I have a phrase that I feel has just come up in my heart, and it's what I want to make my emphasis tonight. Uh, The phrase would be, walking worthy of the Lord. Walking worthy of the Lord. Uh, And as I've been trying my best to pray and hear God, this phrase has just continually come up in my heart. Walking worthy of the Lord. Now, I know that this might sound familiar. We might even be really aware of a variety of applications for this. But there are several instances throughout the New Testament, especially, where this phrase comes up in the various writings. Walking worthy of the Lord. And walking worthy of the Lord is always in relationship to what the Bible would call wisdom. It's always in relationship to what the Bible would call wisdom. Right, Paul, for instance, in Colossians chapter 1, when he's writing to believers in Colossae, there's a family that's been planted there, that they're really going for it. Like, like this is a born-again community. It's a new creation tribe. They are going for it. There's a Jesus people that's been established in Colossae, and Paul is writing to them. Uh, And the reason that I use those examples specifically to reference the people that are being established in Colossae is because when we look at Acts 13, we'll contrast that with some different ideas. And Paul's writing to them, and as he's writing to them, he says to them, we've been praying for you. Right, we're familiar with these verses. He says, we've been praying for you. He says, ever since we heard about you, man, your faith in God, like your radical transformation, man, like you're honoring the Lord, you've pledged your allegiance to him. There's a Jesus, people, like it's the real deal. This isn't just some fake thing. It's not just some cultish adoption of a new language. Like there's a real thing. It's authentic happening in Colossae. And Paul says, we've been praying for you guys ever since we've heard about you. He said, but we have been praying something specific, right? Because what we pray should be specific. 
And we should specifically pray the word. (laughs) Um, You're never going to lack God's agreement when you pray the word. Right? So we want to be a people of the scriptures and we want to learn more and more to grow in prayer by praying the scriptures. And Paul says, we've been praying for you, but this is what we've been praying. And this is Colossians 1.9, right? He's opening with verses 1 through 8. He says, I've been praying that you would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. And this is a really big deal. And we learn why as he follows in the verses that come after what it is that he says he's been praying for. He says, we've been praying for you, and of all the things that we could think to pray, this is what we've been praying, that you be filled with the knowledge of God's will. That's verse 9. Verse 10, he begins to show forth why his concern is anchored into this new creation community, this Jesus people actually being able to apprehend or to access what he says is God's will. And in verse 10, he says, so that you can walk pleasing to the Lord. And he begins to go forward with some things that we would consider to be epic or extraordinary. Bearing fruit in every season. Being strengthened in every possible way. Living in the abundance of the knowledge of God. He goes through a list of things that if we would consider these items or these components in the life of a believer, we would all say to ourselves, oh yeah, I want all of that. But Paul suggests that the hinge point lands on a people individually, but yes, corporately, right? Because Jesus saves people to make them a part of a people. This whole like isolated, independent, I can do my own individualistic thing. I don't need church. I don't need community. I don't need a tribe. I don't have to be a part of a people. It's foreign to what the Bible actually prescribes. It's celebrated in the Americanized Western version of church reality as we have built it, right? If you build it, they will come. Our entertainment model, our catering and making accommodations to the desires and the palates of a unregenerated people trying to cast a broader net not to offend the world and all of its desires, minimizing the cost, trying to incentivize people with all of the material things of this life and dumbing down the real which is the beauty of Jesus right our whole celebrity culture our politic driven idolized ministry culture like this is all nonsense compared to what the Bible prescribes and so Paul is talking to a people but he's talking to people that are a part of a people and so we have to understand it that way it's yes it's me right and I get it like uh, yes like he leaves the 99 to come and find the one I get that that, that's, that's valid. But then in 1 Corinthians, Paul tells them, okay, but put the one out for the sake of the 99. So it's both, right? We want the whole council so that we don't get so self-absorbed, so that we don't get so self-centered and self-consumed where it's all about me. And Jesus is some personal genie that's just over-concerned with me being happy all the time. That's not what the Bible actually prescribes. That's not what this book is actually saying, right? And and it's difficult here in the West because of how conditioned we've become to believe that I'm what matters most. So it's hard to even hear, and it creates an immediate offense as if I'm trying to confront you personally, 
right? In any way that we feel confronted personally, it's because the conditioning has gotten in our roots. The conditioning has gotten deep down on the inside and to a certain measure, we agree. <laughs> ay, ay, ay. You know, we, we don't have the concern as some precious saints do in a variety of places around the world, right? Like we're gathering freely here on a Tuesday night, right? We're not here with the doors locked, with armed guard on the outside, with the consideration that at any moment, a radical, hostile people that have been looking for us and trying to find out where we gather and who's all associated, who the leaders are, how deeply immersed we are, who are those that are leading the charge of what it is that they consider to be um, something that should be a death crime or a penalty to society, right? Like we're not in a situation where at any moment right now we understand that the door could be kicked in, people are going to be dragged out, tied up, burned alive, heads cut off, raped, beaten, tortured. We're not in that type of situation. We're not in, I promise you if we were, some of us may have a little bit more fire or we would have already recanted because of the consideration of the cost. But this is the point. The cost is not the same here and so the consideration of actually being willing to lay down my whole life with Jesus as king and lord and not just my best friend or homeboy or some blessing bus that wants to cater to all of my material desires and my dreams and ambitions Paul is suggesting that God actually has a dream God has a plan God has a purpose God has a will there is something that he has intended and it is creating a scope of work and a narrative that is allowing him to governmentally rule over the timeline of history towards a specific conclusion and he says this is what is the most important thing that you could know because if you don't actually know what God is doing if you don't know what he's after if you don't know what he wants. Well, if I don't know what God wants, then all I know is what I want. <laughs> and our conditioning of our culture tells us that that's what's most important. Well, you just do you, boo. <laughs> you, you can have whatever you like, whatever you love, whatever lifestyle you want, Whoever you want to love, however you want to identify, whatever things you want to pursue, and man, we'll just slap a, a Christian fish bumper sticker on my car, and I'll just put up a Philippians 4.13 or a Jeremiah 29.11 scripture verse in my Instagram bio, and baby, let me tell you something. I'll buy enough Christian merch, and I'll get all the right little fancy phrases and all of this types of stuff, and it's all coming from a platform on the inside that has never actually understood possibly, or even worse than that, it has understood, and it's just been unwilling to actually yield to the idea that there is someone or something greater than the I in my life. And that's why Paul writes in Galatians 2, it's no longer I that live. And that's part of the issue at times is there's too much I. 
There's too much I that's alive. There's too much I that wants. There's too much I that demands. There's too much I that tries to rise. Almost like Richard Wormbrandt. When he preached a message years ago, if you don't know Richard Wormbrandt, look up Tortured for Christ. Leader in the underground church in communist Russia. Solitary confinement for almost a decade. Tortured beyond belief, he would preach with no shoes because his feet were so mangled that he couldn't stand in them for the time period or the duration for him to come and share a message. And preaching a message one time, he opened and asked the crowd here in the States. He said, why is it that the only letter in your alphabet that demands to be capitalized when it stands alone is the I. Leonard Ravenhill considered them to be the self-sins that are at times the last to be confronted, to be dealt with, to even at times be considered because of the conditioning of our culture. What self-sins? Self-centered, self-absorbed, self-consumed. It's our self-awareness and the awareness of our own desires and demands. And Paul is praying for this new community of Jesus people. And he says, we've been praying something specific for you guys because it matters. He said, we've been praying that you be filled with the knowledge of God's will. That there's something God wants. Have you ever considered there's something God wants? Life is not random. Time is not random. This isn't just some abstract sequencing of events that span over hundreds and thousands of years without no real consequence or conclusion that God is involved in. Second Peter 3, Peter is writing and he tells them, beloved, trust me, God is not distant, but he's patient. And he's actually putting up with a lot of nonsense because of how patient he is. He's actually putting up gracefully with more humility than I have. He's putting up with a lot of hostile, rebellious, blasphemous nonsense. But he says, beloved, a day is like a thousand years. God is not disinterested. He's patient and he's also oh kind. But why? Because he has a desire that men would come to repentance before the end of the age, the consummation of history, that climactic moment when he will release his son from his right hand and he will return, where Jesus as the Hebrews eternal intercessor will no longer just be interceding for what it is that the triune God, the, the Trinity, the Godhead, the experience of Father, Son, and Spirit, where he will no longer just be interceding for what it is that they want, that God would say is his eternal purpose he will no longer be interceding for it but the father will say it's time what you burn for what we've always wanted it's time go and get it and Jesus will come back to possess something Revelation 19 tells us that marriage supper of the lamb marriage where the bridegroom will finally have the bride where the crucified king will finally be ruling the universe 
as his father has always desired to honor him and establish him to do so. Where this son of man who rides upon the cloud in Daniel's vision of chapter 7, the one that approaches the ancient of days who is worthy of the throne at his right side, the one who has a kingdom that is unending, the one whose dominion will last forever and ever and ever, the one that will give the final eviction notice to powers and principalities and all the wild beasts that seem to enjoy a particular jurisdiction as they roam the earth in this present moment where the Son of Man will come And he won't rule alone, but he'll rule with a comparable companion. It's the promise of Genesis 2.18. It's not good for the man to be alone, but I will give you a helper that's suitable. I will give you a companion that's comparable. What does comparable mean? She will be like you. (laughs) And the father has a desire to give Adam a bride, and Eve is taken out of him, formed for him, and presented to him as he's woken up. And we know that the Father has a desire to give Jesus a bride, pulled out of him, blood and water, formed by the Spirit, readied, fashioned, put together. And as Jesus is resurrected, alive, awake from the dead, As Colossians 1 tells us, so that he can be the preeminent one. So that even in this, he can have preeminence. The first born again from the dead. Alive forever. He's at the right hand of his father. And Hebrew says he's interceding. He ever liveth to make intercession. I've heard it best. There's an intercessor in the heavens and it's not a woman. (laughs) Guys, it's time to get in the game. Intercession is not just for a group of ladies who don't have anything else to do with their time. And he's interceding for something. But what he's interceding for is something that Paul said it was of utmost importance for the believers in Colossae to understand. He said it's important that you get this. Because if you don't actually get this, you may live your life in whatever way you consider to be wisdom, but there is only one way that God considers to be wisdom, and it's his way. It's why David says in Psalm 90, 12, teach us to number our days, and I love it in one translation. He says, so that I can live my life filled in my heart with what you call wisdom. Proverbs 9, 10 says that wisdom actually begins somewhere. It begins with the fear of the Lord. I'm not talking about being afraid of God in a negative, unhealthy way. Right? 1 John 4 says that the love of God has gotten rid of all of our fear of God in punishment. That perfect love, when it's at work in us, its agenda is to get rid of, to uproot, to discover and give the eviction notice to an unhealthy fear of God and punishment. So I'm not talking about an unhealthy fear of God. I'm talking about a healthy 
fear, an awe, a wonder, a trembling at the consideration that my life no longer belongs to me, that my life has now been grafted into a story that is much bigger than the I in my life, that my life has been brought into a life and a power and now a consequence of a brand new people and something that Jesus is actually coming back for at the thought of these realities and we marvel at the consideration of these things we are with awe and wonder and with great mystery the consideration of who God is we fear him meaning we love him with all of our hearts meaning we yield to him in a real way with covenant love where the first commandment has been stamped deeply upon the inside, where the expression or the demonstration of a life that longs to honor and please God above everything else is the evidence of the Spirit's agenda to establish that first commandment. Love the Lord your God with everything you've got and make him everything in your life. No, not the next thing. No, not, not peripheral. No, not like, man, will I, will I really love this and I love God too? No, no, no. Like the love of God has abolished every lesser lover in my heart. And now it's God, everything or nothing. And Paul is saying it's important that you get this, that God has a will because there's something that Jesus is interceding for. Paul says it again in Ephesians chapter 4. After three masterful chapters with language beyond description, Ephesians 1 and 2 and 3, Paul says it again when you turn to Ephesians 4. He says, therefore, therefore being a transitional word, therefore being a hinge point which actually references things that have already been spoken. It's a way to communicate. Therefore, in light of what we've already been discussing, this is now the consequence, or it should be the byproduct or the conclusion of the discussion that we've already been involved in. And he says, therefore, walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord, or walk worthy of the calling with which you have received. But now, once again, if we simply just attempt to understand this in individualistic terms, then our most important thought or question is going to be, well, then what is my call? Because if I know my call, then I can walk worthy or I can walk pleasing or I can be faithful with my individual call. But Paul is not speaking to or catering to the individuality at times that we desire. Paul is speaking to a people and he unveils this in the first three chapters of Ephesians. It starts with Ephesians 1, the exalted man Jesus. Higher than every name, above every power, dominating over every principality, ruling in every possible way. The exalted Christ. 
This man that God has raised from the dead by his own power, by his own desire, raised him from the dead and through raising him from the dead has now exalted him into the highest place possible. That's Ephesians 1. Ephesians 2 is now in similar language, our lives. Because he begins, at one point, you were also dead. But you were dead in your transgressions. You were sin-saturated and satisfied. You were a rebel. You were hostile to God. You demanded your own way. And in a lot of those ways, you were perfectly fine with ruling over your own life and attempting to be the one seated on the throne of your own attention and affections. It was all you. You were a prisoner to self and liked it. And he says, but God freed you from the tyranny of the powers of the air, which are fueling this self-indulgent way of living. That's Ephesians 2 language. The powers of the air in Ephesians 2 have an agenda to cause you to overindulge in the thoughts and the feelings of your flesh and mind. Whatever I think I want, whatever I think I deserve, whatever I think is best, that's the agenda of the power of the air. You see that represented even in the garden in Genesis 3. The enemy didn't ask them to choose between him and God. That's not the way it worked. He didn't say, become a follower of mine. I'm better than him. He didn't say, worship me. Because I promise you more things than he does. He said, no, do it your way. Choose you instead of God. The choice is not him or God. The choice is you or God. Because in the choice of yourself, you become more like him as a consequence because the enemy is the self-exalted one in Isaiah 14. I will make a name for myself. I'm tired of this guy. I will establish my throne above the God of the heavens and I will be exalted even above the most high. He's the one infatuated with himself in Ezekiel 28, covered with every precious jewel and gem, a cherub beyond comparison in the consideration of the other angelic beings. But it says you fell in love with yourself and your own infatuation with your beauty corrupted wisdom in your life. And it brought you to the point where you fell and you had to be cast down. That's the influence, is to choose yourself. It's the issue of Genesis 10 and the Tower of Babel, which is more than just some construction project. They say to themselves, we know exactly where you are. We're coming to find you. Seventy nations rebelling against God's love and leadership. Seventy nations rebelling against God's love and leadership. Genesis 10, Psalm 2, Raging of the Nations, Book of Acts, historical prophetic utterance and urgency. Genesis 10, we know where you are and we're coming to get you. We're going to overthrow you because we're tired of your leadership and the attempt of your love to rule over our lives. And God says, well, I've got to come down. I've got to see what these guys are up to. And he comes down, and he's like, man, they're unified. Like, they're really together in this. 
right? Not all unity is of a divine inspiration. <laughs> there is a unity that is of a demonic inspiration, a unity that rallies momentum, a unity that finds a lot of agreement, right? Just because a lot of people are agreeing with it doesn't make it right. We have to be able to rightly divide the word of truth. And we have to have discernment in these days so that we just don't get hijacked by everything that's rolling at 100 miles an hour with a Jesus fish bumper sticker on it. And he scatters them. And he scatters them because they're unified in their efforts to overthrow him. But then you find that he scatters them and he disinherits them, which is what Moses reminds them of in Deuteronomy 32 out in the wilderness. Remember the days when God disinherited the nations. Remember the days. Remember the rebelling at the tower. Remember their desire to rule over their own lives. Remember that they attempted to overthrow and to upend God's leadership in their life. They chose themselves and rebelled against the knowledge of God and what he called wisdom. And Paul is saying it's important. And Ephesians 2 is suggesting that there was a time that we all lived here, but God, who was rich in mercy, who was kind in a way that is completely mind-blowing, that even while I was at my worst, he pursued me. Even while I was what I considered to be the chief of sinners, like Paul suggests, even while I was a madman of my own cause, doing everything that I possibly could do to live with a satisfied self at my core. It didn't matter what was the cost or the consequence or who got run over in my attempt to do whatever I wanted to do in order to bring the maximum amount of pleasure to me. And Paul says that at one point we were all here, but God set us free. He raised us from the dead. That's the issue. It's not good or bad. You don't evaluate good or bad. You evaluate dead or alive. It's not good or bad. Well, they're great. They're just not born again. They're dead. Well, you don't understand, bro. Like, Jimmy's a great guy. Jimmy's a dead guy. I don't care if he's never cheated on his taxes or beat his wife. It doesn't matter to me if he's not some drug addict or selling drugs. If Jimmy has not been born again, he is dead in his trespasses. It's not good or bad. It's dead or alive. And I don't just want to use negative examples. Jimmy could be running a Fortune 500 company. He could be a multimillionaire. He could be doing all types of charitable things in his community. If he has not answered the right way to the announcement of the gospel, Jimmy is a great guy, but Jimmy is a dead guy. <laughs> Million ways to die, two ways to be raised. In Christ we're out. <laughs> and Paul says, we were all here. But God did something extraordinary. And he begins this continuation of his discourse. Where he says, through the exalted man Jesus of Ephesians 1, he is now, by his own desire, the power of his spirit, the announcement of the gospel, to those that pledge their allegiance to this man that is alive from the dead, ascended into the heavens, interceding at the right hand of the Father. Those who pledge their allegiance to this man, Jesus, 
the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Bridegroom King, the crucified man, the Lamb slain. When they pledge their allegiance, it changes the category of their life. They're now alive from the dead. They've come out of the domination of the principalities and powers and the tyranny of a self-indulgent life. They can now see God. They know his son. The fellowship of the spirit is real. And this begins the understanding of this new people group. And he says he's come and preached peace to you who felt like you were already near and those of you who were far. And he says, for he himself has become our peace. He says, and now you're no longer foreigners and aliens. Right? Peter tells us this in 1 Peter 2. He says, for once you were not a people, but now you are a people. And you're the people of God. You're a kingdom of priests. Your lives have been wildly, dynamically transformed. You are not what you used to be. God has done something, not just to give you a new language, but he has completely transformed your whole nature and makeup. You are now a new creature. You are born again. You are now alive by God's spirit. And there's a divine life on the inside of you that has an agenda. Because God is after something. And he says, you're not just foreigners and aliens anymore, but you've been grafted in to God's household. And now he's knitting your lives together and creating a habitation for himself by his own spirit. He says he's making you family. In Ephesians 3, it's the continuation. This family now bears a unique responsibility. Ephesians 3.10 says this family embodies something that actually proclaims and prophesies even to powers and principalities. He says that this family, this family of new creatures, this new creation tribe, this church, this covenant people, they embody a reality that only the gospel could make real. He says, because you don't belong to yourself anymore. And what God is doing is extraordinary. And the embodiment of that in a community of people is so awe-inspiring that it even proclaims to powers and principalities. And then he continues on. And at the very conclusion, we have a devotional verse that in so many instances without a proper context to appreciate it the way that we actually should just gets run rampant in our own individualistic desires. Ephesians 3 closes with these words, and we all know them if we've been born again for any time. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we could ever ask or imagine. To him be glory in Jesus Christ and in the church forever and ever and ever. Amen. To him who is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all that we could ever ask, think, or imagine, 
But, well, that sounds to me like God is putting the ball in my court and that I'm supposed to be the one doing the asking, the thinking. I'm supposed to be the one doing the dreaming. I'm supposed to be the one that's uh, creating all of the initiation and then God is going to blow my mind and do way more than that. There's a context here. And I'm not saying that it's wrong, right, to take certain verses and to apply them devotionally to our lives. I'm, I'm all for that. But I'll tell you what's better than that is understanding the context and understanding the scope of work and understanding the narrative and where certain verses like that one actually fit into the conversation that God is having. And the idea is this, that God is creating a people that his son is coming back for. A people that are going to love Jesus more than anything. They're going to live with covenant love for this man. He will become the wildest dream of their life. The fascination of this man will be what actually does it for them. It will pique their interest. Jesus just won't be a little seasoning that we sprinkle on all of our other demands and desires, hoping that if we just involve him in how I'm trying to do me, that he'll bless the things that I really want. No, he will be the thing that I really want. And everything else will come out of that. And God is saying, I am going to have this people for my son. How do we know that? Because he promised his son that he would do this. He promised him. And Jesus knew it. In John 17, when he's praying, John 17 is an amazing chapter. You find the father talking with the son about us. You find God talking to God about you. And Jesus is praying. The whole chapter is almost Jesus praying. And he's praying, and it's days before he's going to hand himself over. He's going to willingly, because he says, no man takes my life from me. So willingly and joyfully, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Willingly and joyfully, he's going to hand himself over to be betrayed, to be humiliated, to be executed publicly, the way, the truth, and the life, on display in the middle of the afternoon, beaten beyond comprehension, being executed as a rebel, as a liar. But he does it willfully and joyfully. And in John 17, we find out why. He's praying. And he says, I know that you've promised me a people. And as a matter of fact, I know what this is all about. We wanted something. Meaning, the Son, the Father, the Spirit. We were after something. There's something that moved us. There was a drive. There was a motivation. There was a longing. There was a flame of love that moved God. And it moved the Son. Send me, I'll go. The great cry of Isaiah 6. For here I am, send me. Well, we know Jesus is greater than Isaiah and he fulfills where Isaiah can't. And in John 17, he's praying. And he says, there's going to come the reality of this people because I know that you promised it to me. 
And we know that the son gets everything that he prays for. And he says, make them one, even as you and I are one, in verse 11. He says, I'm not going to take them out of the world. But even as you've sent me into the world, apostelloed me, apostolically commissioned, the same way that you've sent me into the world, I'm sending them. Just keep them from the evil one. Because they'll carry your name. And even as you've sent me, and the way that you're in me and I'm in you, I'll be in them. And may they be one, even as they're in us, to share in the same experience of unity where now the Trinity becomes the reference point for how we actually consider family together. The wisdom of the cross and the power of the blood to create this new community that Paul is suggesting in Ephesians 2 and 3, it is a sign and a wonder because it is not being predicated or established upon lesser, worldly, fleshly, cultural terms. Paul is suggesting that this family that God is establishing for his son is a people that have been blood-bought. We realize that in Revelation 5. They're singing songs to the Lamb, and he is worthy to receive glory forever because he has purchased a people for God with his own blood. A people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue which is consistent, Revelation 5, with the vision that Daniel has in chapter 7, where the Son of Man has a people ascended, serving alongside of him, comparable to him from every tribe, every nation, and every tongue. And Paul is suggesting that this new creation community is a sign and a wonder because they are family in a deeper way than what the world is able to create. They're family not because they all have the same skin color. Not because they all have the same political preference. Not because they all have the same bank account stature or status. Not because they all have the same number of kids. Not because they all like the same sports team. You get the point. They're family because what the blood has actually done is destroyed all of the conversations that want to subcategorize us and divide us. And this is the issue of Ephesians 3. The cross of Christ has torn down the eternal wall of enmity. All of the divides, all of the hostility between people groups, ethnic distinctions, skin colors, languages, social preferences. The gospel has done something to actually give us power that conquers our preferences. And if the work of the gospel is not conquering your preference, then you have not yet yielded to the real power that is found in the blood. Because now this family has no reason to be divided except for the ones that it willingly embraces. The ones that it joyfully denominationalizes. More than 30,000 denominations in Christianity alone. The divisions that it politicizes and finances. Paul is saying that there's going to come a community of folks that are a sign and a wonder 
Because as a Jesus people, they will primarily identify with Jesus as king and his cross, his blood, and the work of the power of his spirit on the inside of them is going to destroy all of the enmity, all of the hostility, all of the preferences, all of the prejudices, and these people, having been blood-bought from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, there's not going to be like an American section in heaven, right? God is going to save people that we don't even really like. He's going to save people groups that we actually want him to execute justice against. <laughs> it's always been said. I don't know who said it, but it's, it's amazing and it works. You never find out how much of a racist you are until your kids are going to get married. Oh, man. Yikes. I've got five. Calm down. But Paul is saying that this community is going to be extraordinary because the quality of life that they will share is going to be something of a supernatural element that without a divine life that is sourcing it, it would be impossible for them to actually sustain it beyond the boundaries of all of our emotional instabilities and our propensity to live offended. That the work of God in this new community and what Jesus calls church, because this is church. Church is this new creation community that will love God above everything else. That will live out of covenant love, intimate fellowship, covenant loyalty to Jesus, covenant loyalty to one another. Anything beyond that? Let's get it on, but those two things are primary. Love God with everything, love your neighbor as yourself, because the second commandment is as the first. This community breaking all of the barriers of the cultural, the fleshly, the preferential norms, this community is what God is going to plant in a city, in a neighborhood, in a region. This people are going to be supernaturally extraordinary, and Jesus is praying for them make this people one even as you and I are one not by all the other lower level stuff not by all the worldly stuff that can just so easily be redefined and all of the allegiances can just be swapped and changed in a moment make them one even as you and I are one okay well that's going to be impossible unless he actually does it but he's going to do it and at the end of Ephesians 3, this is what Paul is saying. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ever ask, think, or imagine. But what is it in relationship to? It's in relationship to the price that God paid in Ephesians chapter 1. The people that he rescued out of Ephesians chapter 2. And the community that he's forming out of Ephesians chapter 3. This is what God has sacrificed and paid for and poured forth blood for. There's a people that he promised that he would give to his son and he's done every possible thing in order to faithfully make a way for him to make good on the promise that he made to the son and Paul is saying if God can do this 
If God can take radical, hostile people groups and he can reconcile them and not just bring them to where they coexist, but bring them to where they are so deeply immersed in a blood immersion and a divine life to where they now actually relate to one another as family in a supernatural, authentic way. There is nothing more impossible than that is what Paul is saying. And God is going to reconcile Jews and Arabs. God's going to reconcile Russians and Africans. He's going to reconcile Filipinos and whoever else you want to throw into the mix. God is going to reconcile them all. And now the experience of reconciliation between us and this community that breaks the bonds of all of the demonic agenda to overthrow God's love, leadership, and derail a people from knowing what is God's purpose. You should begin to see division differently in the consideration of what it is that God promised his son. You should begin to see racism a little differently when the work of the cross and the blood of Jesus has been poured out in order to establish a new people, to establish a new people that will destroy all of the agenda of hostility and division from within the hearts and lives of an authentic community. This is what God promised his son and Jesus prays for it in John 17. I have to have it. He says it in verse 24. I have to have it. This people that you promised me, I have to have it. He said, because I want them to be with me forever. He said, where I am, I want them to be with me so that they can behold me and so that I can reveal my glory to them forever and ever and ever. And Paul is saying at the end of Ephesians 3, the most absurd thing that you could think of, God is going to reconcile hostile people groups and make them family. He's going to bring them together to where they actually love his son and love one another in a way that reveals an authentic covenant reality and power, there's no way but to him who is able to do exceedingly, no matter how mission impossible it sounds, abundantly, no matter how we might survey the human scope or the landscape of the nations and think to ourselves, there's no way that God is ever going to be able to bring this to pass. He's going to bring it to pass, not because you deserve it, not because I deserve it, but because his son deserves it. And he is going to be faithful to make good on the promise that he made to his son. You deserve this, and I'm going to give it to you. You're entitled to this. And I'm going to be faithful to make sure that you have it. And after the consideration of these things, Paul starts chapter four with saying, now walk worthy of the calling that you've received. Colossians one, I'm praying that you know the will of God because it's the most important thing and that you be filled with the knowledge of his will so that you can walk worthy of the Lord. Because real wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. Job 28, 28, for God himself has made wisdom and it has begun with those that fear him. And it's important that we understand what it is that God is actually doing so that we can recalibrate our attention 
and our affections. And we can actually yield our lives to the Lord and to his agenda. And this is what we find in Acts 13 for 95% of you that thought I forgot. He's like, man, I didn't even have it anymore. Like, bro, after 10 minutes, I was just like, ah, yeah, whatever. (laughs) In Acts 13, Luke is in the details. And you have to know that. He's of a medical profession. And there's details in the details. And there's beauty in the details of what Luke is communicating. And in Acts 13, verses 1, 2, 3, and 4, it starts in verse 1, and Luke says, There at Antioch, there's a church. Well, it's important to understand what Luke means when he says church so that we don't come to our own conclusions based off of what we think church is or worse than that, what we want it to be. We have to understand what Luke actually means. The church that's there at Antioch is a consequence of the persecution from Acts 8 and 9 where a madman by the name of Saul was running rampant. And he was actually jailing them, finding them wherever they could be found, executing them publicly in the streets and standing over their dead bodies in approval as he did with Stephen. The persecution that hit Jerusalem scattered them throughout the region. There was a scattering. And it says that the leaders in Jerusalem, they catch word that there's a Jesus thing happening in Antioch. And it says that they don't want to go, so they send Barnabas up to see what's going on. Like, hey, bro, go check this thing out. Like, go scout the land for us. Tell us, like, is it the real deal? Like, is there an authentic Jesus people there in Antioch? Is God actually doing something to form a people and the people that he promised his son? Go and investigate. Go and take inventory. And it says that Barnabas gets up there for a time and he lives among them. And he comes to the conclusion like, bro, this is the real thing. Like this is going to be more work than just what I'm able to do by myself. So he goes looking for Paul. And Paul has been off the grid. 14 years underground. Nowhere to be found. Tent making, living faithfully, living life, loving Jesus. And he goes and he finds Paul. And he brings Paul with him now back to Antioch. And they're there in the midst of what God is doing, which is the result of a persecuted people that caused them to scatter and plant new works throughout the region. And Antioch is the consequence of persecution. Because if you find they never actually left unto the ends of the earth, like Jesus told them before he assembled or before he ascended, (laughs) he said, you'll be my witnesses. Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. It took persecution for them to actually scatter and go. And they get up there, and this is where Acts 13 begins. There at Antioch, there's a church. But what Luke is saying is that there's a family and not a franchise. There's a family and not a franchise. And I'm telling you, the Lord is planting Antioch communities. 
The Lord is establishing these Acts 13 Antioch communities where a beautiful Jesus people will be assembled in cities, neighborhoods, regions, but they'll be there as a family and not as a franchise. They'll be with fathers and mothers and not with CEOs of ministry companies. They won't be corporations, but they'll be real families. Most of the stuff that we're calling apostolic is a corporation. It's a ministry organization. It's a company. And there are CEOs of ministry companies that are real fond of their brands. But there's coming a day where the brands are going to be subjected to the beauty of the bride. And where the Lord is going to do away with all of the brands that are competing in the attention and the affection of the family that he's establishing for his son. And all of the rivals. It's just extraordinary to me how we celebrate and finance the very thing that Paul told the Corinthians to steer from. They said, some of you are saying that I'm of Apollos and I'm of Cephas. He's like, man, thank God I didn't baptize none of y'all. So that you would rather pledge your allegiance to some rock star, superstar, iconic Christian celebrity. You'd identify with a movement or with some person who's ruling over some movement, some current relevant new stream or lane or thing that's trendy in Christianity. The very thing that he encouraged them to steer clear of is the thing that we celebrate and finance and give people massive social media followings for. Oh, this is my guy. But the Lord is doing away with all of the franchises. He's doing away with all the franchises. And he's going to establish families. I'm telling you, family is an offensive idea because we can't take credit for it. It's God's idea, and it's what he promised his son. And there at Antioch, there's a church, but it's not some ministry franchise. It's not built off of logos and personalities. It's not some celebrity organization run by ministry CEOs and people that are business savvy and great fundraisers, but they don't really like people. They love ministry, but they don't really do people. Oh, man. Ay, ay, ay. I love ministry and I'm super anointed. And so people make a lot of exemptions for me because I'm anointed. And because I'm anointed, they make a lot of excuses for me. Let me just tell you this no man is bigger than God's value system. No man is greater than God's value system. No man. He saves people to be a part of a people. Your ministry is not more important than the church. Well, I'm too busy to be a part of a church. Then you're too busy. And you need to subject yourself to the biblical prescription. And you need to get your butt into a family and get planted and begin being accountable. Where your brand and your idea of yourself is not exalted above the people that God promised his son. Where you use the bride, you prostitute the bride to fund your own brand and all of your own ambitions and your own agenda where you think your dream is bigger than God's dream and you're trying to make a name for yourself and exalt yourself, prostituting an agenda of ministry the whole time. These gifts in Ephesians 4, these offices, they're supposed to be a gift. They're not supposed to be repulsive to the maturity of the body. 
Oh, man. I'm going to finish in a couple of minutes, I promise. Like, There's a family there. There's not some ministry franchise where everybody's trying to protect proximity to the superstar of the organization, where we're overlooking all types of nonsense and we're compromising convictions because we want to create a proximity that allows us to experience all of the unique incentives with being with somebody who's really anointed and he's really well known and like, bro, God's with him. He's super gifted. I know his character doesn't really line up, but bro, like, like people are inviting him everywhere. It's like, yeah, I know his home life's a mess, but bro, like, like he just preached at this conference. There's a church there in Antioch, and that church is a family that is wildly diverse. There's apostles and prophets and teachers, but let's, let's not get too quickly hung up on all the titles. Right? I, I think at times we become so consumed with these titles that we miss the whole point. Right? There, there's apostles, there's prophets and teachers. It's trying to communicate something to us, and, and it is amazing. But I think that there are other titles that we should pursue before we try to imagine our lives as the embodiment of some of these you know, other things that, yes, Acts 13 and Ephesians 4 talk about. I'm not trying to throw out the functions that are supposed to be gifts to help the body mature. I'm not doing that at all. These things are Jesus-sent, and they're a gift and a desire so that the body would awaken and grow up into a full place of maturity or stature where they are comparable to the Christ, and it is going to happen because God has promised his son a bride that is comparable to him. But I think that there are other titles that we should aspire for. How about we start with this one, faithful. Well, I'm an evangelist. Let's start with faithful. Let's start with faithful. Okay, let's faithfully read our Bibles. Let's like faithfully pray and seek God's face. Let's be faithful with the tiny details of life. Well, no, bro, you don't get it. Like, I'm exempted from all that stuff because I'm the man. Like, I've got an organization. I've got a banging graphic guy. And I've got an awesome worship leader that's willing to go on the road with me, bro. Like, we're about to get this thing going. And what we've done is rather than confronting all of the individualism that in most instances creates the majority of our hostility and divisions... Oh, well, they don't appreciate me. Well, they, they won't recognize me. They won't call me evangelist so-and-so or prophet so-and-so. Don't they know it's on my Facebook page? And bro, like I put it on my business card and yada, yada, yada. It's like, bro, d- does Jesus call you evangelist so-and-so when you come to the secret place? It's amazing to see you, prophet John. I'm so glad you're back. Like people that demand that you like reference them by a title. Like, like bro, your name is Bill. <laughs> like, bro, like, what, are you, what are you talking about? Like, no, that's Prophet Bill to you. No, that's Bill, bro. Like, like, like what are we doing? But because we've idolized ministry, 
We have a people that feel called out of insecurity and not out of intimacy. And it's not coming out of authentic life with God and others as a authentic community, as a family where the pot or the soil of being planted in a new covenant, new testament, new creation people is what God is using in order for the functioning and the flourishing of my life. What we do is when we no longer find a necessary benefit or incentive in and with these people, we begin to rally on all of our own individualistic desires and demands and most people because of insecurities feel called. Well, I want my life to be a part of that conversation. And I want to feel valued and I want to feel important and I want to feel this. And if I can just take the right selfie with the right person and post it, like if people can see me with this guy and think that like we're connected somehow, then maybe they'll put me in the same conversation. And in most instances, because we've never confronted the demand for the eye, we've told people, well, we'll just bless you and we'll just, we're, we're going to lay hands on you and we'll even sow into you for your next season because we just feel like the Lord is moving you on, right? Like, like God is doing something in your life. We're going to lay hands on you and we're going to send you. Where? Don't really care. We're just going to send you from here, <laughs> right? Like be blessed in your goings. And we tell people that if they can just start a 501c3, get a couple of partners, and generate enough results, that their results will give them the exemption from the biblical prescription. Because now you're too important to be in church. <laughs> you're too well-known. You're too busy. No man is greater than God's value system. No man is greater than God's value system. And Luke is telling us that there at Antioch, there's a church. And there's a church filled with diverse callings. That there's a beautiful people there that are functioning in real life out of loving God with everything they have. And there's a variety of ways that they are demonstrating or revealing God in their locale. And it's not just diverse callings by way of these titles or distinctions that Luke chooses to mention, but it's also ethnicities. He mentions five names, right? There's Paul, Barnabas, Lucius, Manaean, Simeon. He's telling you there's a Jew, there's a Greek, there's an African, there's a Mediterranean man, there's a Roman. These guys who have no business being together are together. And what are they doing? They're ministering to the Lord as a way of life. They're ministering to the Lord as a way of life where the first commandment becomes the main ministry of the church again. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. There they are in Acts 13. As a family, diverse callings, diverse ethnicities, the power of the gospel creating a brand new people. There they are, not just coexisting, but they're doing life Jesus's way. And as they're doing life the Jesus way, coming under the yoke of Jesus, they are there together ministering to the Lord, fasting and praying and worshiping as a way of life. It's an ongoing effort, not just in case of emergency break glass. As a way of life, 
and as a way of life, ministering to the Lord. It says that they gave the Lord a people and a place for the spirit to rule over them and say whatever it wanted to say. There in the midst of them, a family, a corporate people, individually, corporately, unique callings, diverse ethnicities, ministering to the Lord, the Holy Spirit begins to speak. And the Holy Spirit begins to speak and he says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. I have something for them to do. So in the midst of the church that ministers to God, the church that ministers to God receives instructions how to minister to others. It's the way it works. You minister to the Lord, right? The Moravians, 100 years plus, 24-7 worship and prayer. Unto what? Unto one of the greatest missions movements the world has ever seen. It should be the consequence of living deeply, intimately with the Lord and ministering to him as a way of life individually and as a corporate people. The consequence of that should be the Holy Spirit speaking and beginning to release unique assignments, instructions, commissionings. Go and do this. Go and occupy space there. Go and fulfill this role. Go and minister to those folks. Go and take this job. Go and start that business. Go and do this. Go and do that. Out of the reality of the church being the church, the spirit having a people wildly possessed by God and his desires, out of that we find these unique commissionings. And it says that the whole community identified that Paul and Barnabas were called. Now, what would that even look like? And they all rally around him and they lay hands on them. And this Acts 13, 4, and off they went, sent with the Spirit, is not the same sending as what I was joking about a few minutes ago. It wasn't like, we don't really know what to do with y'all. We're going to lay hands on y'all. Bless you guys. Like, have at it. But the Lord is establishing a people that will live in light of the gospel and its power. That will live in light of the gospel and its power. And these people as communities, as families, are going to be a unique and dynamic demonstration of what the gospel and its power are actually able to do in the hearts and lives of those that yield to this man, Jesus, and pledge their allegiance to him. And out of these families being fostered, an authentic life in God being cultivated by the Spirit and our lives being knit together and relating to one another, not just coexisting, but relating to one another as family, which requires more than 60 or 120 minutes once a week. But our lives now being knit together as family, we become a sign and a wonder. And our primary goal is to minister to the Lord with all of our might. To minister to the Lord with everything that we have. And out of ministering to the Lord and giving him a people and a place where the spirit can literally say whatever he wants to say. Out of that, because our lives have been yielded. 
We no longer have any demands, any desires, any dreams that are going to create hostile intersections with whatever it is that God would say. Here we are, Lord. Send us wherever you want to send us. We'll do whatever you tell us to do. We'll go wherever you tell us to go. We'll say whatever you tell us to say. I will do anything that the Lord asks me to do. Why? Because he's my dream His smile over my obedience is what I live for, and I delight to do his will. And the Lord is going to establish these communities. I'm telling you, where the beauty of the bride gets exalted above our infatuation with all of these brands, where all of the competition between brands and streams and personalities, icons and egos finances and denominationalism differences and all of the nonsense that we cater to celebrate and finance God is going to establish people communities churches as families that will demonstrate real gospel power and out of that and out of ministering to the Lord as a way of life we're going to find our destiny They say you find your tribe, you find your destiny. You find your people, you find your purpose. Why? Because the I is not more important than the us. The I is not more important than the us. And if we're not careful, our self-consumed and self-exalted generation and cultural conditioning will at times lead us to do whatever we think we must do in order to fulfill the dream or the demand that I have. But the I is not more important than the us because the Lord is preparing an us for his son. Nowhere in the New Testament are you going to find something that is going to authenticate or endorse an individualistic life in God. It's not my personal savior. It's our father who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. Jesus said, when you pray, pray this way, because the first word changes the whole game. Our. It's not mine. I have a one and a half year old. I'm sure soon he's going to learn the word mine. He doesn't know it yet, but it's typically one of the first words they learn, even though they're not taught it. Why? Because it's inherent. Mine. Mine, mine, mine. My toys. Some of us, it's funny, but we don't realize that's our life. (laughs) My dream. My lifestyle. My idea of what kind of life I should have. My idea of what kind of car I want or the job I want or the vacations I should be able to take. Or mine, 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 mine. And Jesus says in Matthew 16 that there is going to be that group of folks that spend their whole life trying to protect and preserve their idea of mine. He said, but then there will be another category that are willing to lose all of the idea of mine for yours and now ours. And they'll be the ones that actually find their real life. They'll come fully alive 
They'll not only find God, but they'll find real life and real purpose. But he says, those that are willing to go all in for my sake and my gospel. And I just believe that the Lord is longing to do something in, in our hearts, yes, I, I say that, obviously, collectively, together. Um, but especially for those who are a part of this house and this work. There is a call to a deeper layer and level of being anchored into what God is doing. Not for individualistic game, not for the establishment of the I, but for the sake of the us. And on behalf of God's purposes in this hour of history, in this city and in this region, there's an us that God is looking to develop so that the us can become brokers of God's desires to a city and a region. Because it's ministered to the Lord, then we get instructions and commissionings to minister to others. And the Lord is looking tonight for a counting of the cost. Right? It's why Paul says, I'm praying certain things for you so that you can actually walk worthy of the Lord and his call. So that you can understand the terms and you can actually respond right and then partner with grace to go all in and to be wild, to be radical, not for a moment or a week, but for the long haul. Let me tell you what's sexy. Not two weeks of being famous on Facebook. It's 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years. Still loving Jesus. Still going all in. Still running the race. Still knowing him and having a desire for him still fulfilling his purpose in your life. That's what's sexy. That's what's considered radical. That's what's the real deal. And I believe that the Lord is laying out the terms tonight because there's something that he's looking for. And it's not that I've come to communicate something different by way of idea or vision, but there's a deeper call into what we might think we've already committed to. There's a deeper layer where we think we're standing on the bottom floor and then all of a sudden he rips the floor out and we find ourselves deeply immersed into places we didn't even know existed. But in this hour, the Lord is asking, he's reaching, he's calling. There's the invitation in this hour. Will you go all in with me and my gospel? These are the terms. I'm telling you, man, take all that patty cake, patty cake, Jesus man stuff and trash it. There are real terms. It's not this patty cake, patty cake, Americanized, bless me, biggie size me, Jesus. There are terms and he's worth your life. And it's what he's asking for because he knows his own worth and he's not going to compromise his own value. I am worth this. And for those of us who are still trying to taste and see of the things of the world, then maybe our palate has never actually been satisfied with the reality of the Lord. Because, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's all stand together because I'm going to pray something and make a particular call. And I feel serious weight on the invitation from the Lord. In 
reference to the Moravians, many of them would leave the shore. Now again, this is after 100 years. Most of them that began it weren't even still alive when this was happening, when the conclusion or the consequence, the Moravians leaving the shoreline, knowing that many of them would never see their families again. They would never come home to their wife, to their husband. They were telling their kids possibly goodbye for the last time, shipping off from the shoreline. It's where we get this phrase because they would say it, they would sing it, they would declare it as their boats were leaving for distant land because they believed it was more than just being convinced. They were convicted on the deepest level possible that man, Jesus is worth this. That he's worth it. That he deserves something. And I'll give my life to see him get it. And they would leave the shores. And they would say this phrase. May the lamb that was slain reap the reward of his sufferings. May the lamb that was slain reap the reward of his sufferings. For the joy set before him, he endured. The joy was the people that his father promised him. The joy was this community that he knew his blood would purchase. The joy was you, and it was me, but it was us. And the Lord is longing in this hour to rediscover the beauty of the church as more than just some event center, more than just some logo-driven personality organization, more than just some handful of celebrities and super gifted or anointed folks. He's longing to rediscover the beauty of a blood-bought people that will live with real divine power and a real sense of divine calling and mission. A people that will intentionally, with covenant love and the flame of love in their hearts, alive and on fire for the man Jesus and his mission. They will abandon their very lives. And this is offensive to anyone that's not even been brought close to the threshold or crossed it by the power of the Spirit. It's offensive to consider losing my own life for the sake of someone or something else. It's offensive to think. It's offensive. But the gospel is offensive because it confronts the root issue and it's no longer I that live but it's now Christ that lives in me. And even now, this life that I live, I don't live it by my own strength, my own might, my own intellect, but I live it by faith in the one that gave his life for me. And there's a sense of life and there's a source of life on the inside that fuels what I could never actually do in my own power. And that is, I bring you my life. I bring you everything I have. And I give it to you and do with it what you will. But my life is now yours because you gave me yours. And you've given me your life and brought me into your story. 
And I don't live afraid of you and indebted to you in some weird, cruel, taskmaster-driven way, but now you've given me a joy that's unexplainable. And it's satisfied me in a way that the world has never been able to offer. And it's better than the limelight, and it's better than being famous, and it's better than drugs, and it's better than power, and it's better than sex. You've done something to me to wildly change me, and now I'm yours forever and ever and ever. And the Lord is establishing a people once again in this hour that just need to know that there's more than sitting in a chair for 60 minutes a week that there is to this thing. There's more. There's more. There's more. And he's apprehending people with his spirit and the urgency of the hour and the call, the burden of his heart. And he's possessing people with his purposes. Man, like something happened to me. There's nothing else to live for. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like, I want to be faithful with anything God asked me to do, but there's nothing else to live for. Like, it's the gospel grid or nothing. Like, it's stewarding everything and being faithful. Kingdom life, gospel, period. There's nothing else. He's done something to me. But has he done something to you? Or are we living entertained by church events? Are we living by way of satisfying attendance, giving every once in a while? You realize Jesus said on that day, there's going to be many that say to him, I never actually knew you. But I attended all the meetings. I gave in offerings. I casted out devils. I raised the dead. It's amazing, man. But there wasn't this intimate place of fellowship where you were mine and I was yours. Man, and I just believe that tonight, man, like the Lord wants to get some of us. That he wants to get us. And I mean that exact in the way that it sounds. That you've been trying to get him to do all kinds of stuff, but he's been trying to get you. And I believe that tonight, man, that, that like for some, it's the call. Give me your life. You've given me attendance. You've given me money. You've given me a form of Christian culture in your home. You pray for meals, right? You don't watch like absurd or, you know, extremely profane movies anymore. You've even like changed some of your music selection. It's like you've given me forms, but you've never given me your heart. I want you. I'm asking you, bring me your life tonight. Right? That's some of us. That's where we are. For other ones of us, it's just a deeper place of committing to what we thought we were already committed to, but in a way that is going to break some of the conditions that we've applied to our commitments. It's going to break some of the conditions. Well, I'll do it if. All of the ifs. Man, may the ifs be abolished tonight through the yielding of our hearts to the Lord. No more unique demands, hostage situations. I'll do this when you do this for me. I'll let this go when you promise me this. I'll release this level of devotion when you finally fulfill this thing I've been asking you for.
Because the Lord is longing for a people. A people that would be the church that he promised his son. Because this is what he's coming back for. He's coming again. He's coming again. He's coming again. May our hearts be ready to see him and to receive him. Thank you again for listening today. We pray that it has fanned into flame the love that you have for him. If you would like more information about Burning Ones, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel, follow us on social media, visit our website at www.burningones.org, or download our app.